will get rebellious, rebellious. Oh, sex, money, power, wicked, including awesome. Hi, David. Thank you so much for coming to Rebellious. It's great to have you here. Bells, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So your story is so compelling. It's layered. It's rich. It's a bit of true crime. I guess a lot of true crime. And honestly, it's a it's a deep psychological dive into the relationship between father and son, uh, you know, parent and child. So thank you so much for being here, because I think this is an amazing book. Everyone should read it, because I think regardless of how extreme your father was, I think a lot of people would see parallels in their parent-child relationship reading this. So let's bring you back to the beginning. So your dad went to an infamous penitentiary, Sam Quentin. How did he get here? What did he do to get in that situation? So dad had been married for only a few months. My mother... 16 years old, pregnant with my older sister. And to make a long story short, my mom, basically from day one of her pregnancy, didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Laid on the couch. My mom and dad were living with her parents, the Dalton family. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother, not being the most moral person, was having what you call an ongoing affair with a handyman that once rented them a place to live. Okay. So in exchange for errands and fixing the car, she would sleep with him. So one day, and my grandfather, who was a good guy, mm-hmm. was a night watchman. So he slept all day. And husband and wife hated each other anyway, but he was asleep. So one day, this man, Cleo Cole, came out of the bedroom with my grandmother, spots my 16-year-old mom, mm-hmm. about three months pregnant, so not showing too much, mm-hmm. on a couch. And he said, oh, my, aren't you lovely? I wish I could date the daughter instead of the mom. So, wow. Okay. <laughs> he's a sleazeball, and sleazeballs yeah. do that. So it was a stupid statement, provocative. Right. So he wanders off. So my dad gets home from work, and this is complicated at this point. My mom decides to tell him. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother, who would you think would have everything to lose, Says, you know, if you were a real man, you'd whip his, you know, you'd whip his face. Yeah. You'd beat him. Don't worry, you can curse. <laughs> you'd whip his ass and, yeah, right. and just show that show that old man a thing or two. Yeah. So I say in my book, I was like kicking a sleeping bull in the balls. Yeah. My father became enraged. So he goes and gets his best friend, who's his boss, explains to him that my mother's been brutally raped within an inch of her life, the two of them need to go see revenge. So a man, Cleo Cole, previous landlord, lived 25 miles away in Los Angeles. They live way north. He rented a um, little trailer apartments, mm-hmm. and he was a mechanic. My dad knew that. So my dad parks his car a block away. This is 9 o'clock at night. He sent his friend George ahead, and he says, hey, my car's broken down, and I'd really like to rent one of your apartments. So Cleo, oh, this is a good deal. I'm two for two. Make money as a mechanic, rent a trailer. So Cleo comes down to the car. My dad's hiding in front of the car, and he brings a trouble light. The hood's up, and he leans over, and in the old days, you took off the air filter, and you had 
spark plugs and you had a rotor. This is ancient history, but I think it's all electronic now. <laughs> but that's how the sparks fire. So Cleo leans over, puts the trouble light up, mm -hmm. and he senses danger. Yeah. He takes the rotor off, sticks it in his pocket. No one sees. My dad leaps up with a monkey wrench, big, strong wrench. Right. George slips behind him, puts gloves on so no blood will be his. Yeah. And they proceed to beat this man to what they think is his death. Mm -hmm. My dad hit him in the eyes so hard. This guy's 51 years old. He's fat and he's out of shape. And between the beating of the two, he collapsed and he starts bleeding. And they think he's going to bleed out. They've done their job. Mm -hmm. He'll just die on his own. So luckily for Cleo, he had a wife about 10 years older than her name, Smiley. I've done all the research. Smiley thinks he's been gone to her. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she comes out of the house. Meanwhile, Dad and George try to fire up their car. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that car. Yeah. But the rudder's missing, and they don't know that. Okay. So in their panic, they rifle through Leo's pockets, take his keys, his wallet, which had his ID, $3.23, and like a credit card. They fire up his car, and they start driving. They get not too far. And in their panic, they decide to get out of the car <clears throat> and throw all the papers mm -hmm. into a parking Meanwhile, the police have been notified by Smiley. They're looking for him. They arrest. Right. So their question, what happened? That goes into the brutal rape. Yeah. You know, I'm defending my wife's honor. George, who's an idiot, says, I was just doing what my best friend said, defending her on. So, But unbeknownst to George, he does not know that your dad, Thurston, is lying to him. So he thinks truly that your mom got raped. Yeah. Even though it was just... George is an idiot, but he's honest. Got it. And he's loyal. <laughs> You're not going to do this to my friend's wife. And what year was this? 1947. 1947. Okay. So, please take them down mm -hmm. to the county jail. And my dad has a series of incredibly lucky breaks, which is the only reason he lived to be 85 and a half. Mm -hmm. So, he tells his story. His story is, my wife's brutally raped. I confronted this guy. George got out of control. Oh, my God. Oh. We were just going to rough him up a bit, but my God, George tried to kill him. Got out of control. So they're in prison, and through a connection, my dad's, his mom's relative, they hire an incredibly good defense lawyer, mm -hmm. but only for dad. Mm -hmm. Not okay. for George. Not for George. So this guy's brilliant, and he plays all these things, dad's. 19, mm -hmm. he's a veteran, he's a husband, he's going to be a father, he's scared to death, his wife's raped, it could happen again. Right. Meanwhile, George is told the severity of the entries. Well, he had it coming. I defended my friend's wife's honor, I would do it again. Mm. No hesitation. That does not go over well. Uh, not yeah. only is there no remorse, <laughs> you'd do it again. Right. So George takes George a while to figure out he's been betrayed. Mm. So they both get sent to San Quentin. Did they get the same sentence? Well, what happens in maximum security prisons? Mm -hmm. I'm an expert now, but <laughs> when two people committed a crime, they separate them in different cells. Mm -hmm. San Quentin's big. Mm -hmm. Death penalty, prison, big, big penitentiary. Right. So they only see each other once, and I'll get to that. So the judge doesn't sentence Dad because we don't know if George will die. 
He didn't die that night, but he's in a hospital for weeks. Low blood pressure. He's blinded for life. You never see at him in either eye. And Dad's second big break, George doesn't, Cleo doesn't die. So they test Dad's IQ. I mean, this is fascinating. In the old days, they had an abacus. So no surprise, most prisoners are idiots, particularly violent ones. Right. Two kinds of prisoners wind up in maximum security penitentiary. Mm -hmm. Incredibly smart thieves that do it over and over. And brutal, physical, just barbarians. Right. So even in the training they give the men in the yard where they put them in the big penitentiary, they test them, their IQ, test their psychological. Oh, so this was done for every prisoner. Interesting. Okay. Because when you put it, when you put a prisoner in the big yard, mm-hmm. they're confronted with what I'll call lifer cons. So a lifer con is 40 or younger, great physical shape, mm-hmm. never going to get out. Okay. So new prisoners for them are this heterosexual sex is gone. Right. Source of sex. And it's amazing how many become homosexual because that's all there is. Right. That's yeah. You wouldn't believe it. The source of drugs, mm-hmm. alcohol, errands, they become your punk. So the, when you get in the big yard, the lifer cons are going to size you up, decide what they're going to do with you, and it's not going to be good. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they train you. Don't, if you're violent, don't take the bait. Somebody walks up and says, I'm going to hit you. I said, do something to you sexually. Yeah. Get away. Don't do anything. Right. If you're a thief, try to stay true, try to stay honest, try to right. avoid them. Yeah, of course. But during that blunt, they test you. So my dad, smartest guy I ever met. And maybe a lot of sons think that, but his IQ was off the chart. For a guy that never really went to formal school, he could pick up math, physics books, and read them. One day, I asked him as a teenager, how do you read physics books? He said, you don't. They tell you what's going on. Really? Mm. So he was smart, smart. Do you know the number he tested? He says it was way up in the 170s. It's higher than when they had tested. So in their abacus, though, mm-hmm. when you hit 100, it drops back to zero. And most prisoners won't hit 100 and it's average, I think. But they don't bounce back. His hit zero and went back up to 70. When the psychiatrist read it, it showed 70, which is really low. Mm-hmm. Right? 70 is, I don't know that you can get much, but you get around 80 that you can function, 90, you're okay. Yeah. 100, 110, you can do things. So the psychiatrist tests him, and they start having this conversation. And he yeah. says, why did you lie on your IQ test? Mm-hmm. So I didn't know. He says, you're like 73. He says, I didn't do anything. So they retest him, and they go, oh, shit. You're quite seventy. So then he explains to the psychiatrist, Makes the psychiatrist teary-eyed. He grew up homeless, lived in a car. Dad beat him with the wet end of a rope. Mom made him pick cotton 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Treated like a slave. He yeah. goes into the Navy. He gets married. His wife's brutally raped. He's been a victim all his life. And oh, by the way, he's Cherokee. Everybody picks on him. He's this picked-on guy. He wins the psychiatrist over. So the best job sent him. Maximum security prison. Mm-hmm. There are not many good ones. <laughs> yeah. right? You can break bigger rocks into little rocks. You can clean toilets. You can bob endless miles of concrete yeah. floor. None of it's good. The primo job is in the chief psychiatrist and the chief physician's office. You handle menus. 
you do autopsies, you get Christopher he gets the number one job. Because he's brilliant. They put him in there, and he doesn't have to be in the big yard every day. <laughs> he was in the big yard for a while. And one of my favorite stories, it's in the book, you got to, and they let him out in the big yard mm -hmm. before all this happens. A big guy walks up, a life for con. Yeah. 30s, walks up and insults the hell out. Are you married? Yeah. Where's she from? Texas. I screwed every Texas whore. They're, they're all, my dad grabs him by the throat. <laughs> there are guards up on catwalk. Uh-huh. High-powered rifles with scope. Yeah. Uh -huh. I grabs him by the throat, yanks him to him, gets him on the ground, and just starts smashing his jaw and teeth into talcum powder. <laughs> boom, boom. Yeah. So I said, my God, Dad, why didn't you get killed? He said, well, there's two things you need to understand, stuff. And this is how the code worked. One, the cons hate the screws, which is what they call them. They hate each other, but they hate the screws worse. There's degrees of hate. So the lifer con, all the cons surrounded me. They couldn't get a clear shot. They pulled me off the sky. Mm. Somebody gave me a handkerchief, cleaned the blood off. We started walking in groups, smaller groups, smaller groups, till they couldn't find me. Because even though they don't like you, they hate them worse than they save me. So one of his friends of the Lifercon sought Dad out, said, if you ever do that again, kill you. Dad grabbed his throat and he said, if you don't get out of here now, I'll snap your neck like mm. a twig. See, pushes the guy up. No one touched. So I asked Dad, what am I getting your brains blown out? There's worse saying, son. I'm not <laughs> going to be anybody's whore. I nobody's stooge. Seems he did not fear death, really, at this point. He didn't fear any man. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean... Were were his parents violent towards him? His dad was very violent. Okay. A whole other story, his dad yeah. was alcoholic, gassed in World War One. Mm -hmm. came back, his lungs didn't work. Right. Be cut candid, he's a middle-aged, dust bowl, depression, white trash, oaky with no skill, and his lungs don't work. So after he worked in the oil patch so he couldn't, he just started bootlegging and driving around the country. My dad and his mm -hmm. mom lived in back of a little wooden trailer that basically no no protection. They stopped at cotton farms and made dad pick cotton all day, and he was fast and good. He bet his family like age eight on. Wow. And they were really mean to him. Mm -hmm. So dad didn't have an easy. My big argument is, he could have played it forward. Instead, he made his kids suffer every single injustice he did. Anything we felt, he wanted us to be just as hurt and just as beat up. Yeah. So, yeah, let's get into that. So he went to Sam Quentin. He gets out. He actually gets a pardon into, I'm sorry, it was an eight-year sentence, seven-year? It should have been a 10-year, but it got commuted down to under four. Under four. Okay. So he got commuted uh, by the governor. Which is amazing. So he has just much later. Much later. Okay, got it. But either way, he gets out in under four years. You're born about nine months after, so obviously him and mom got right to it. And then, but his behavior has not changed. In fact, he's probably worse than he's ever been. He now just has more resources to kind of to basically plot out his plan. So at four and, years old, and Bell's. Mm -hmm. This is important. He's emboldened. Yeah. One of our jokes was, Dad and I had these jokes no one understood. Talking his way out of San Quentin was the easiest thing he ever did. 
<laughs> yeah, that's... Um... Are you kidding me? It's the one place no one can talk themselves out of. Right. But he did. He would go back to his cell after the kite psychiatrist would tear up and laugh his butt off. That's insane. I mean, obviously there's something... This psychiatrist, I would love to understand his credentials. <laughs> but, you know, there are people that do go to therapy and end up uh, gaining the tools to become even better at their craft. Exactly. It doesn't work with everyone. One of my... To rehabilitate, I should say. His father-in-law was a psychiatrist considered the best in Washington. Mm-hmm. Had senators, governors. Right. He would get drunk at dinner parties and make fun of his, his patients. Oh, cheers. Yeah. And then he went, <laughs> and he would just laugh at them. Yeah. He was that smart. But he was also that bad of a person. Right. Dad was that smart and that bad of a person. Yeah. And he was intimidating, smelled like an NFL linebacker. Yeah. Was he t- Was he over six foot? He's about six foot, but mm-hmm. he was built. Just a, just a stocky, just... Like his dad. He was man. Yeah. Powerful. Mm-hmm. Powerful. Yeah. So at four years old... He takes you on this car ride, and this is kind of amazing that you remember this so vividly, but I think I understand that when something traumatic like this is said to someone. I wet my pants. Are you kidding? He said, four years old, we need to get rid of your mother. So we're driving along. He goes to the reservation for two reasons. They have a new reservation. This is Stone Age record keeping. Mm-hmm. Right. And he can thank God for that. He fakes that he's not a violent felon. Even now. When they ask you if you ever committed a crime, you have to check the file of Nullum box. You don't get hired. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he goes to this Navajo reservation. What What happens? Does like a chief come out and tell you, yes, you can stay here or not? Like how exactly did it work? Well, there's two jobs you can get on a reservation. He okay. worked for El Paso Natural Gas Company. Okay. That had leases on the reservation. So they are in charge of their own compound and they pay royalties to the tribe. So he applies for a job. He dummies up references, dummies up, you know, he's the greatest worker in the world. They buy it. They don't care. Yeah. Here's a smart guy who can drive a truck, use a shovel, read. Right. Capable. Mm-hmm. They promoted you that day if you don't shoot somebody. I mean, these were really primitive days. The other thing is, he's not afraid of George. Mm-hmm. But he's afraid of an ambush. And he thinks George might come and kill him. Does George eventually get, get, he gets out because dad got out and eventually they just send him on his way. Probably right. two more years later. Okay. But so dad doesn't want George to ambush him and he needs to tell a lie mm-hmm. about his past and it works. So that's why we're on the reservation. I see. So I'm four years old, freezing winter day. The part of the reservation we lived in is up around seven, 8,000 feet. So winter's really brutal. Right. You can see the timber line. We were getting Dad's car, and I opened with this. I called the Green Bomber, Green Rambler. Mm -hmm. And we would drive out in the ice because it was frozen tundra. He'd slam his brakes and spin the car end over end. No seatbelts, nothing. You're bouncing everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. But you think it's funny, and you're scared not to. And he says, boy, we have to get rid of your mother. Your mother's crazy. You grow up with her. You'll be crazy. We have to get rid of her. And I know he means kill. Right. I love my mom. I'm scared. Right. And so like, from that moment on, I'm scared of him. I'm scared. I never forget anything. Right. Just Sears and me. I can remember the moment. Mm-hmm. So that's frightening. Mm-hmm. He has two more kids. Right. They say married a long more time. But things are horrible. My mom's 
mentally ill, and he's brutally mean, and every right. day is could be your last. Yeah, definitely. And then how many um, siblings total? There's four of us, my older sister mm-hmm. and me, and we're several years apart because of prison. Mm-hmm. Brother two years younger, and a sister two and a half years after that. Okay. So, I mean, he stayed with your mom for some time, considering. Almost 16 years. Mm-hmm. So he would do other uh, really violent things towards you. So one was he would tie you to a tree and leave you there basically almost 24 hours. Until somebody would let me go. Let you go. A neighbor would let you loose or something of that nature. Sometimes they ignored me because they didn't want to get caught up with my dad. Right. I would say they're probably afraid of Thurston's um, (laughs) rain. My neighbor um, particularly thought dad went around and he'd untie me. Right, right. Um, And then around 10 years old, you started to basically be his, like, lookout man when he would steal these tools. Explain how that came about. So... On the Navajo Indian Reservation, which is bigger than West Virginia, about the size of Pennsylvania, it's a big place. Yeah. And particularly then, very, very remote. So the Navajo tribe, this is after El Paso, he works for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Mm-hmm. And he works in Port Defiance, eight miles from Windorock, which is the Navajo capital. He's safe jobs. Mm-hmm. It's completely <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> So he's in charge of all the tools, power tools, power hammers, every bit of expensive equipment, and they have some. And their warehouse is spread out all over the reservation, mm-hmm. sometimes 100 miles apart. He's got the key to all of them. Mm-hmm. So their inventory system was like Trump's at bar lock. Right, right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. Really isn't one. <laughs> it's just all in the bathroom now. <laughs> all in the bathroom. So he would, we would go to these warehouses, and we had a signal. Very early, I was this criminal yeah. alpha. So they're corrugated steel quonsatites. Mm-hmm. And you've seen them, you not here, but so they had these spread out all over and they had all their tools stored. Right. So he would break in and steal what he thought was just enough that no one would know. And he would steal them from everywhere. So sometimes we'd go in six, eight hour drives, steal them, come back, and he would tell me stories about the people killed in San Quentin, and you had to trigger it. Right. None of my siblings knew he went to San Quentin. None of them knew any of them. Really? I'm the only one. He would tell me things, and I was smart enough to know how to trigger him to talk. By the way, I know why there are Miranda rules. So you get a criminal, and you get him under pressure, and you say something that he said, he'll flirt it out, and you, you can trick him easy. I was tricking my dad into telling me more than he wanted. Because it gave me something to do. Right. I was fascinated. Yeah, sure. I get to San Quentin. Yeah. Tell me about the life for con. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your cellmate. I remember it all. And I would, right. I, I would take notes. So we're going along. But we would get to a big where. So he was worried about getting caught. Because mm-hmm. you could. So if I saw a car from a distance, and I, it's like seeing an ant. From 100 miles, right? You, there's nothing there. There's just rocks and dirt. Right. You can see a car forever because you can see the cloud of dust. If I thought it was a suspicious car, how do you know? I would throw one rock against the warehouse, and it would dong. I mean, you can hear that. Man, be alert. Don't be in the back underneath some stuff. Got it. If I threw two, it's a yellow light. Warning. Mm-hmm. Get to the front. I think there's trouble. Three men, get the help back to the car now. So 
I wasn't great at this because I couldn't tell the difference between a bunch of Navajos and a pickup and a government-issued car till it got within quarter miles. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody else could have done great at that either. Right. He says, you can tell by the dust if it's a big truck versus a car. So a lot of times he got mad at me. I warned him for no reason. Right. Once, though, I knew it was a sedan headed fast. I just bam, bam, bam. He got to the car, locked it up. Right. He would have got caught that time. Wow. So anyway, we had systems. We had signals. We So what he would do is drive to the nearest town, the town we would later live in, of Gallup, New Mexico. And he met these group of Mexican men, and he would fence these tools for cash. And they'd sell them to construction sites, and he had quite the business. And he had P.O. boxes in town, mm-hmm. at least two. And that's where he'd get mail from people to tell him what they wanted to buy and sell. Wow. <clears throat> So we're in, when we were in Gallup, because that's a real town on Route 66, mm-hmm. and at the time, by the road, Illinois to Beach in California, people loved that road, and they went through Route 66. So you could see license tags from all 50 states. Yeah. And people from all 50 states. It was amazing. So if we went into Gallup, we'd always got something to eat, and he was always hitting on waitresses. Mm-hmm. They were poor. Their ethnicity was... Mexican or Indian, where he thought he could exploit it, he would hit on him. And as a kid, I kind of knew what that meant, but, you know, sex wasn't a thing. Right. And, but I knew that he was with them busy. Mm -hmm. And he could pray. He knew who was weak, who was strong, who would put up with the wood. Right. But whenever we went into any public building, that's where my strictest rules never sit near a window. There always had to be two doors. My job was to walk the parking lot in the street mm-hmm. and tell him there's a card that didn't make sense. Right. Now, at first, I didn't know what that meant. But if you see a station wagon with a bunch of kids' toys from Vermont, that's not your guy. Right. <laughs> and eventually, I understood who George was without knowing George's name. You're mm-hmm. worried about a guy. I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And you don't. And if you don't want to be caught off guard, mm-hmm. and I'm my job is to help warn you. So I would watch the window the door. If anybody was coming, I thought I would bang a spoon on the table mm. and get your hands off her breath or pay attention. Oh my God. Two spoons, <laughs> get ready to run. Three men do a hundred yard dash to the door and knock down anything in your path. Yeah. So he wouldn't, he would not involve any of your other siblings, just you to do this. Why do you think he honed in on you? My sister was a, obviously a girl and older yeah. We're sexual things, so this should never. Mm-hmm. He needed somebody he thought was going to be his protege in his image. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure my sister would have been good at that. Right. Really honest siblings. When the search to know. My brother was a blabbermouth. He gets me in a lot of trouble if you read the book. Hey. Yeah. If you went to my brother right now, and he's a great guy, but. And he's younger, right? What's that? S- two years. Two years younger. Okay. Six, three, he's huge. <laughs> so. She said, you can't tell anybody. This mm-hmm. is my secret. Right. Go to the grave with this secret. Within two minutes, every person within the The whole town knows, yeah. <laughs> and even now, you have to say, you can't tell. Got it. Well, yeah, I'm going to tell. I just told you just So he just, no filter. So, yeah, Sam couldn't, Sam couldn't handle it. <laughs> and not terribly reliable. He was just a crazy right. kid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he had multiple accidents in the book. I mean, his poor hand, um, the accident his head. Make your reader. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. Why he's 
wasn't dead by six. There's some crazy stuff. Anyway, right. So I was the guy, and I would go on these trips. I gradually knew who George was without knowing his name. We're looking for a guy about 5'10", 5'11", blondish red hair. And when he comes, he'll be coming to kill. So I'm looking out for George. I'm looking out for strangers that don't make sense. I'm lookout. Mm-hmm. And because I'm me, I'm learning prison stories and putting together, I guess I didn't know this book. I'm constantly like, who yeah. are you? And how did we get here? And I've got a really mentally ill mom that you just, mm-hmm. by the time I was four, I was hurt. She was my right. child. And you're just trying to get through every day I was. That's what I kind of love the way you write the book. It's very layered. And you kind of layer a context on a context on a context through just listening to your parents at night, little conversations you have your, with your dad. It's like, it's like, at least the first half of the book is all about this, like what I call pillow talk. Just little, and then you're like, oh, that's why they did that. That's why he's acting this way. I would crawl to their door, yep. lay on the ground, and there's like that much of a gap. You could see if there was a shadow. Leave my ear against the door till they right. stopped every night. Yeah. So you you were very enthralled with trying to understand your father and, and I guess your mother as well. Till I realized there's nothing to understand. <laughs> right. There was there was also another part in the book about your dad. Like, yes, he obviously had this criminal past, remained basically a criminal, was violent towards you and obviously your mother and your other siblings. But he also had this extremely sensitive side to animals. And I thought that was so interesting that he felt people were very disposable, but an animal was... He could identify with an animal. I think yeah. one of the most powerful stories in the book, and I tried so hard to get this exactly right. We're out on an August day, and it's hot there in the summer, right? Mm-hmm. I like Florida hot. It's a humidity, but 110 is 110. Yeah. We're driving through the desert, and you can see heat waves coming off these little strips of road. And all at once, we stop in the middle of nowhere. Just stop. And he's getting out of the car, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? So in the Old West and during those days, you carried canvas bags full of water on your bumper. Mm. Everybody mm-hmm. did. Okay. And in case your radiator went broke. Gotcha. It had enough to fill it back up. He kept water in plastic jugs, and he kept beef jerky. So he gets out, and I'm trying to figure this out. And he says, you see that coyote? About a quarter mile away, so coyote caught in a bear trap. Navajos hate the coyotes. They think they're the devil. They also eat their sheep. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of, they're yeah. kind of nasty. <laughs> that's predominantly how they fed themselves. Right. So he says, follow me, but don't get too close. So we've got jerky. We've got the water jug. We've got a towel. So he reaches down with the towel and wraps the coyote's jaw tight. Yep. Because he's going to bite because he's hurt and he's scared. He looks at the at the uh, hand. He said, hadn't been here too long. Part of his hand can regrow. He'll live through this. With one hand, mass fan, he pulls that trap open. And I'm seeing muscles and blood vessels ripple like Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. Like, God, am I. He pulls it back, mm-hmm. puts it down, and it stays. He pulls the coyote's head up, puts him around. Puts water in front of him and jerky. <clears throat> Unrolls the towel and we walk backwards to the car. And the coyote wants to attack and dad understands that. So he puts his hands out. Mm-hmm. So the coyote sees the water, the jerky. 
we get back to the car. He said, I'll save every coyote every time. It's not their fault. Of course, yeah. it's sheep. I've been doing this for millions of years. Right, of and course. by the way, there is no God. That's bullshit. But there are coyotes <laughs> and there are sheep and they eat each other. Yeah. So we get in the car and we're driving along and we're not too far from home. And we've stolen a ton of tool. The entire back is full of, I mean, this is in the 50s. I mean, electric saws, electric hammer. I mean, really expensive stuff. Right. And so we get to the most interesting political spot on earth. And no, it's not Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> your governor's man. It's a jurisdictional issue. So on the Navajo Indian Reservation, the part we're at end ended at the Arizona line. It goes into Arizona, but it's like a weird-looking shape. Navajos cannot drink alcohol on a reservation, even today. Mm, interesting. Legally, prohibition wasn't over for them until 1953. Crazy story, another time. Mm. Three geniuses built the Navajo Inn a half mile from the reservation line. And Navajos would go there and go back to the reservation, drunk out of their minds. Right. And sometimes they would drive great distance. The ones nearby would walk. So here's a, about a 200 feet building. It's not really a bar. Right. And it sells more wine, beer, and liquor than any place in the entire state of Arizona. <laughs> Phoenix is a big city. Right. I mean, it is just drunken heaven. Right. And all times of the year, you could it'd see people, Navajo men, passed out everywhere. No. In the winter, they freeze to death, and their lips would be blue, and we called them popsicles. You, Incredible. You over popsicles in the dead of winter. So anyway, the Navajo Inn, yep. legendary. Finally yep. closed it in the 70s. So we get to the right where you turn, and Dad sees a truck with a government license tag, GS. He says, oh, shit, we got to stop. And look at this truck. 100 degrees, waves coming off the ground, no sunglasses. Right. You're blinded, red rocks, beautiful. But... And I look at the front of the car, and it's hit something called the haystacks, these beautiful round rocks right at the entrance to the window. And I think it's an optical illusion. There's no front. And there's a shirt hanging out over the steering wheel with no windshield. And I'm like, ah, that's an apparition. So dad gets out and he says, I have to investigate this. It's an accident of a BIA work. Mm -hmm. Stay in the car. Don't get out of the car. Mm -hmm. First thing I do is get on the car. I'm a kid. And I'm fascinated. So I walk around. This Navajo man's decapitated. <gasps> I start puking. It just, uh, you know. Like, could you see, like, literally there's, everything? And I went over where Dad is, and there's a head looking up at you. And the guy had long hair. So you could see the head separated. He oh, picked geez. the head up by the ponytail. Oh. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and he says, you little mama's boy coward shit. Stop puking and get back in the car. I should never bring you anywhere. You're just a baby. He picks up the head to Back in the, mm -hmm. the front seat of this demolished truck. Right. Writes up the accident. So I'm still out of the car and I'm... Yeah. So I finally get in the car with him and he shits me hard. He said, damn you, toughen up. You little shit, you're 11 years old. What's wrong with you? Just saw a severed head. No big deal. <laughs> like, Jesus. He, he proceeds to explain 
The white man stole all this land from the Indian, sticks them on a reservation, creates all these rules that only favor a white man. <laughs> then decides they're too stupid to drink, but white men can drink all they want. Thomas Jefferson stopped Navajo and all Indians from drinking in 1802. Mm-hmm. All different story, but it's true. Right. So these Navajos, most of them World War II vets and mm-hmm. older men, they can't drink on the reservation, but in town, no one will stop them. No one will stop them. And it's, not, it's after 1953, so it's actually legal. Eisenhower actually legalizes when enough World War II veterans said, come on. But the reservations never changed the rules. At least the Navajos didn't. Even now, I don't yeah. know about all. So he said, so these three white guys who could care less about anybody but themselves put a bar half miles away, and they don't care if they kill half the Navajos in North America as long as they get rich. Mm-hmm. He said, so we're stealing a few tools from the people who stole the land from the people who live here. Yeah. And you're worried about that? Come on. The code, the rules, do whatever you want. Everything's bullshit. Generals kill people, but if I kill somebody, it's against the law. Governments go to war, but if I go to war, I'm in prison. He said, you do understand that all rules are made by people with money and power who hate everybody else. So your your dad was, he he literally would just go into what I call psychological warfare, trying to solidify his story. He kept saying he's full-blooded Cherokee, but he's the pale kind. Uh, come to find out, you found out later in your life, that is not true at all. But he used it as this means of obviously telling you stories, controlling you, controlling the narrative. You even said in your book that he would tear up thinking about the injustice done to his parents, which were not Cherokee. And he hated them. <laughs> and he hated them. How did you feel when you found out? Did Did you have a sense of pride of being Cherokee when you were younger? Or were you kind of... Where they only, that's the only thing we could be proud of. Got it. Okay. So when as you... the book is layered, yeah. and as I start writing notebooks from 10 on, mm-hmm. as I grow and evolve, I start looking at pieces. Right. And over, it's like a, like a kaleidoscope. And when I went to write the book, I looked at my life as a kaleidoscope. This is in view. This is in view. Then it goes out of view. Then this changes. And you piece it all together. And the first thing you think is, my God, yeah. I think about my life's a lie. I have no idea what's true. I think my name's David. I think I was born August 16th. Right. But, and and I, so I go to the census and look at records. I go to where Dad was born, and I look at what the Mormon church collected because they were really good at this. Right. And I'm piecing this together. You don't want to believe everything about your father. It's a total lie. Right. You want to look up to him. He controlled me, as we know through the book. Right. Two murder situations that came up that were really life and death. Right. And scarred me like crazy. But mm-hmm. so I confronted him once, and it's the dumbest thing I ever did. So he didn't talk to me for a very long time, like 14 years before mm-hmm. that happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm gathering all this stuff. One day I went to him and I said, Your grandfather was Joshua Jones Crow. Mm-hmm. Your grandmother's Mildred Augusta Henry. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound Cherokee to me. <laughs> and I go into a few facts. He grabs me by the throat and he said, if you want to go outside, I'll kick your ass. and I'll beat you to death. 
And at that point, I'm early 30s. I said, I don't think that comes out good for you. Right. Yeah, because you're you can now take him. And hopefully, I, believe it or not, <laughs> if this fight goes to any distance, right, I'm going to hurt you bad. Right. Because you have go my decades throat. of rage build up. Let go of my throat mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And he said, get the hell out of here and don't ever come back. So uh, in the book, uh, basically, another a Navajo Indian told you. Oh, you're pulling my guts in. <laughs> told you that you were not Cherokee and that your dad was a liar. So I have seven angels in my book. I first two angels are Navajos. Mm-hmm. The second angel is a man named Rex Coons. Rex was in a code talker, one of the original 29 that carried the Navajo code, the one, the war in the Pacific. Okay. The only code the Japanese ever broke. They didn't even, they just spoke Navajo. No one knew this language. Never written down. Anyway, so he's a World War II vet. He's the postmaster in my little town. His second oldest son's my best friend. He's the little league coach, 4-H instructor. And every time dad beat me, I'd run down to the Coons house and sleep at the end of, they had 11 kids and I'm mm-hmm. like, there's 12. So I drop out of college. I go through this terrible phase of who the hell am I and don't know who I am. What am I going to do with my life? So I go back to the Gallup, New Mexico, and work construction with a bunch of ex-cons. Mm-hmm. And every weekend, I drive to the reservation, drive around, hang out, and I go to Mr. Kuntz's house. Mm-hmm. And so their son, my friend, is in college. He's one of the few Navajos that got away. So there's really nobody to visit but Mrs. Kuntz and him. Right. So the first few times, Mrs. Kuntz gives me, like, something to drink, sits me down. And it's like, why are you here? Well, you know, I'm moving back to reservation. You know, I'm Cherokee, and this is my home. Okay. So about the fourth time this happened, Mr. Kuntz is waiting. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, I hate him at the time, but he did the best thing he could have done. He said, sit down. He said, let me explain something to you. You're a white boy. Mm -hmm. Your umbilical cord is not buried here. We bury our umbilical cords on the reservation. And guys that don't leave, that never go to school... They're working construction. They're drunks. They're dead at 30. They have miserable, horrible lives mm-hmm. living here in a place that only they belong. Mm-hmm. Your dad said he was Cherokee. He's not. You think you're an Indian. You're not. You don't have a drop. Your dad's full of shit. Everything about your family is full of shit. Jesus. Get your ass out of here. Mm-hmm. And if you ever come back, I'm going to whip your ass. And I'm like, I worship this man. He's my hero. Uh-huh. And I said, Mr. Coates. He said, don't Mr. Coates me. Get your ass in the car. And if I ever see you again, it'll be the last thing you ever see. Go. My God. So I got in the car and I'm like wetting my pants. Like, uh-huh. I'm like 18 and a half, 19. <clears throat> like, shit. What am I going to do? So I make, I'm estranged from my mom which is another big part. Mm-hmm. Like an idiot, drive to her house in Albuquerque. I'm going to make things right with my mom. She says, who are you? You don't love me. You're not here. You disappeared from me. Mm-hmm. You don't mean anything to me. Don't knock on my door. I got back in the car, and I drove as fast as I could. Probably used the bathroom three times, slept in the car, and got back to College Park, Maryland, where I'm willing to, I was a student. Right. Two or three days before class to start, re-enroll, never look back. Do you think he ever said that to your dad? 
No, my dad would have broken Mr. Klutz into pieces. Okay, so he, he knew, okay, dad's out of the picture. I can say it to the son now. Mr. Klutz was five foot four. And, mm-hmm. I mean, he was a good man and all, but yeah. two punches. He <laughs> two punches. He, yeah, Thurston would have really taken him down. So, yeah, so you had literally two rejections in what, 24 hours? Less than 24 hours? Two gigantic. Yes. Yeah. Like it didn't get bigger than that. Mm hmm. So I got back to College Park and I was in a fraternity and I loved the fraternity. Still do. Sigma Chi fraternity. They were good guys. They welcomed me back. They they always called me half breed. They knew some of these. Yeah. And they gave me a room. I re enrolled, rejoined the track team, got my job back catting, became a busboy. Did you just keep it to yourself for a while? When did you finally, like, who was the first person you told after that? Well, Patty, my wife, mm-hmm. knows some. And second marriage, great marriage. Mm-hmm. But um, I only in little snippets, I didn't tell anybody. So what happened when I met Patty, and I was almost 50, maybe it's about 50, mm-hmm. I would always take trips. I'm a lobbyist. I have clients all over the country. <laughs> and I could always fly across the country half a dozen times a year. Right. I would drop, stop off in Albuquerque, drive to Gallup, drive to Fort Fun, mm-hmm. way to Mr. Coons. <laughs> but there was always a place for me to go back. Sure, sure. And um, so I would always go back to this one house in Gallup where some of the most awful things happened. We abandoned my mom there. My dad cut her brakes and left her to die. But she would drive it. Brakes would fail. She'd get killed. We did terrible things to her there. Mm. My sister tried to commit suicide there. It, I knew that an unraveling I passed, I had all doors led through Gallup. I couldn't get past it. I couldn't get my arms wrapped around what happened. Yeah. So I would sit out front of this little house on 306 South Cliff Street and just stare at it. Mm-hmm. Hour and hours. It never makes sense of it. So one day I pull up and I start this and a man runs out of the house real fast and just pounds the window. Open your, roll down this window. Mm-hmm. So what the hell's wrong with you? You're some kind of a nut. Are you stalking me? I'm looking at, you're a middle-aged Mexican man. Mm-hmm. I stalk somebody, she's going to be a lot better looking than you. <laughs> he said, I have seen you for year after year, different cars, different clothing, Oh, interesting. You. Yeah. What are you doing? And I started telling the story. Mm-hmm. Well, I lived here. Now I bought it from a man who had four kids, got rid of the wife, two boys, sent him to all this boy. I think you're a liar. Oh. I said, okay, I have a near photographic memory. So listen to this. When you walk through your garage, there's a crack that comes straight to the center and then it goes to the right all the way to the end. When you go inside, there's green and black tile. Unless you fixed it, it's still chipped. There's a pipe that comes down. Unless you painted it, there's still a rust mark. There's a little wooden bench in the back. Mm-hmm. That's where I kept my mitt and my bat. When you walk up the stairs, they're stained, but they're wooden and worn. Mm-hmm. And the third one from the top creaks so loud. He said, come in here. You're that <laughs> Yeah, you're not lying. Yeah. And then he turns nice. Mm-hmm. He raised his family there. He's a widower. His kids have moved away. Mm-hmm. I walked in the living room, and all at once I understood what had blocked me all my life. When I walked back to the living room, I remembered a moment. My dad came back to Gallup 
after we abandoned Ma. He always worked on the reservation, but then we actually physically moved inside of it with real Indians, mm-hmm. not in some compound. Right. I could see my mom, three dimension, on the ground in a fetal position, faces looking at me. And this really happened when I was 10. And yeah. it looks like that National Geographic picture. Yeah. There's no hope in this face. This is a mm-hmm. face that's beyond dead. Yeah. It's only alive because she can, can't stop herself from breathing. She jumps up. She runs to me. She's wearing the threadbare cotton dress. It's February. There's a dirty mattress on the ground. No rent, no food, no money, nothing. Yeah, let, let's go to that real quick. So your dad did finally find a way to get rid of your mother. I'm air quoting for those who can't see me. And he literally packed up the entire house when she was out at work. I think she was. She worked for about two hours a week. For <laughs> the time she was out of the house, he literally packed up the entire house, took you and all your siblings, literally left her without elect- without heat, water, the rent was due, no food. And your mom, uh, during the book, it seems like she almost had like clinical depression when you first kind of start out, but then it seems like it's actually much more... There, there's a lot of layers to her personality and what has happened to her. Yeah, she's profoundly, she's 92 yeah. and still alive. It's unbelievable. Never heard her, seen her smile, never seen her laugh, ever. Mm. And her whole world view is on what's happening with her at that minute. Still love her to death. The only one of the four that keeps up with her real regularly. Anyway, yeah. so dad cut her brakes. I would find this out years later. Yeah. Gallup, New Mexico is built on a series of hills. It's built in the San Juan Basin, and it was a coal mining mecca. So it's a series of really steep hills. Mm-hmm. He cut her brake linings, figured she'd drive down the nearest steep hill, hit a car in the intersection, be killed, and he's done with it. How did you find that out? Three years after we did this, mm-hmm. through a tremendously kind philanthropist, she goes to Albuquerque, New Mexico, mm-hmm. this broken down car. But being mom, she drove around the entire town at 10 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. Pulls onto Route 66, hits her brakes, but not in a life-threatening situation. Walks to a gas station. The man fixes her brakes and said, Lady, somebody meant to kill you. They cut the brake lining, snip it through. That's fresh cut. Wow. Somebody tried to kill you. He fixes the brakes for free. Mm-hmm. She drives to Albuquerque. She's got like 150 bucks. Some horrible broken down. She somehow remembers my dad worked with a guy. We lived in Albuquerque one year between reservation stents. It was a philanthropist. She doesn't know what the word means, but she knows he does good. Right. So she goes to the phone book and looks up the number. Dad worked for an insurance company for less than one year. Woodman accident like. And she knows the guy's name. Mm-hmm. And it's like the liquor. His name's Jack Daniels. No, I always get this wrong. It's Tom Collins. <laughs> Some alcohol, right? <laughs> so she calls every day for Tom Clark. Right. And he's not there. Right. Can you leave a number? No, I can't. Mm-hmm. So she sleeps in her car next to a park and every day walks to the park. It serves money, mm-hmm. just buys a little bit of food. Policeman finds her, gives her a blanket, but doesn't do anything. What's, what's he going to do? She finally reaches Tom Collin. He hears her story out. He comes and gets her. He gets yeah. her room. Mm-hmm. He gets her a job, the truck stop waitress trainee. He, mm-hmm. She works at the Copper Bowl, a truck stop waitress trainee. Right. Buys her clothes, gets her legal. She tracks us down. 
she visits us mm-hmm. against my dad's will. She's with the man that she's dating. Yeah. And she tells me the whole story. He tried to kill me, cut my brake line. He thought I'd be dead. And it makes perfect sense. In the book, it seemed like I would never, from reading the book, I didn't ever feel like your mom was, like, was a pathological liar like your father. I felt she was stuck in a manic loop. She was. Um, it seemed like she was always trying to get the love of your father back from when they were basically teen lovers or young lovers. And I lasted one nighter. <laughs> right. And she basically, and she seemed to basically crumble under stress. And, but she didn't seem to be a liar. No, I don't think she is. Right. So when she explained that in the, when you did explain that in the book, I, for some reason, my gut feeling was like, I feel that's the truth. Your dad, some of the stories, you're not totally sure because some things check out and then a lot of things don't check out, obviously. No, that's exactly right, Bells. And there's several things that make me know that's true. So to go back, when we left my mom that day, we put a, he put a card on the door. Don't look for us. We don't want you. And he took off. That's so crazy. She basically knew where he had to go. She knew where he'd worked. Yeah. So when a week, so we move and about a week goes by and I'm worried about mom every minute, but we're 26 miles away on a reservation, living in a place in a part you're not supposed to live with your white, but we're Cherokee. So what the hell? Mm -hmm. The Navajo kids didn't buy into that because they beat me senseless. Mm Mm-hmm. So, after about a week or so, my dad one day grabs me, like, on a Friday afternoon at 3. As soon as I walk out of school, we're going back to Gallup, just you and me. And he's frantic. So, we drive back to Gallup. And it's fall. I remember it's, like, dusk is at 5. And we get there for 4. And he gets out binoculars. And there's a picture window in the and they're strafes, but they're not fully pulled. And he's just staring, staring. And it seems like hours. I don't know. And he says, you have to do something. You have to go in that house and see if your mom's still there. Why do you think he did that? Well, can I get to that? Yeah. I think the listener will want to hear this. So I said, no. He gets his side of his fist, smacks my head, and it mounts mm-hmm. out the window. You're going. Okay. <sighs> so I get out, and I'm... Really scared. It's one, what if I find her and she's alive? What if I find her if she's dead? Neither right. outcome's good for me or her. So I go and open the garage door. I had a little, little heavy wooden door. So I pull them apart. There's her car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shit. She's here. So I go out the stairs. Nothing's locked. And I go into the living room. And there she is. She's lying on the ground in fetal position. But I make some noise. And she stirs. I'm not sure she knows I'm there, but she's kind of stirs. Mm-hmm. And I look in her face, and her face is just a mass of tears and mass of sadness. And I start crying, and I start shaking, and I can't feel anything. And what I realized at 50 when I went back, I had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. But what is a nervous breakdown? You're tense. And I'm crying and crying, and I can't move. I'm paralyzed. I just can't move. <laughs> and I'm sobbing and sobbing. And she eventually sees it's me. She runs to me mm-hmm. and grabs me. My oldest boy came back to save me. We can go out and be on welfare. You'll deliver papers and cut grass like you always do. We're going to be okay. Yeah. My dad has come up the stairs behind me. He rips me out of her hands 
he hits her hard and knocks her to the ground. Oh my God. And he says, God damn you, die. Jeez. Back to the car. He looks at me and he says, you son of a bitch, mama's boy. And he hits me real hard. I don't feel anything. Mm -hmm. My head's bouncing and I don't feel anything. I feel nothing. I feel like this is what it must be like in war. You're, you're scared and you're shot. You don't even feel it. Right. So the whole time I'm shaking, we get back to the house. I never told anyone ever story. When I walk into that house at 50, I tell this man every story. I tell him the whole book. Wow. He's a kind man. He feeds me twice. We're looking in that living room. Nothing's changed about that. It's furniture, but nothing. And he finally looks at me. He says, you can't change your past, but you've just had a huge breakthrough. And you can change your future. You're going to be okay. I went back to that room and wrote for hours and hours. So I did something I never do. Maybe stupid. Call my dad. Mm -hmm. He answers on one ring. Dad. Did it ever occur to you what you did to us? Go to hell, you effing son of a bitch, coward, mama, piece of crap. Don't you reinvent life to turn yourself into a man? I knew you'd never be any kind of a man. You're not much of a man. You're nothing to me, you son of a bitch. Don't ever call back. Oh, my God. So I'm like, but all at once I'm at peace. I'm free. Right. I've been living up to this all my life. Yes. This is what I aspired to be. Mm -hmm. Your hero, your protege. Mm -hmm. So I call mom. She eventually answers, Mom, did it ever occur to you at 10 that you tried to turn me into the head of the household and to the son that would leave and take care of you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you abandoned me. You're not here now. You left me to die. You should feel really bad about yourself because you did a really bad thing. She puts the phone down. Oh, my God. I'm supposed to be like the house husband at 10 and the provider and all. And I said, I have spent my whole life in two prisons mm -hmm. that intersect where I have to be mean enough to be this guy's son and weak enough to be my mom's basically husband. Okay. Forget this, not sexually, but. Yeah, understand figuratively. And mm -hmm. I've trapped myself into guilt, hate, and shame and believed I deserved all this. And oh my God, what have I done? Yeah. What have I done to myself? It was that day I decided to write this book for one reason. People, you can go through things that are unimaginable mm -hmm. and you think you can never escape, but you can. You can yeah. have to work at it real hard. Yep. I had to understand where my spirit was broken from that moment that that happened with my mom. I never liked myself, never loved myself, mm. never believed I deserved anything good, believed I deserved what I got, mm. and believed I could never do any better. So in my 20-odd thousand reviews and podcasts and book zooms, I'm always asked the same thing. How did you break through? But before I tell you about that, I have a big prison writing club. Man club. Just heard from a kid last week. Your book gives me hope. I've wrote them on long notes. And I'm an oh, so you write to the prisoners. It's great. I mean, I send books to San Quentin. I send them all mm -hmm. over. But a lot of prisoners relate because they say, I went through you, what you did, and what else was I going to be but a prisoner? I write them back. Um, I'm not buying. You can make your own decision. You don't have to rape. You don't have to kill. You don't have to steal. Believe it or not, you can yeah. live like good people. But the letters that break my heart... Some are from prisoners who think there's no hope. 
but it's older people who say, I can never trust, I can never love, I grew up like you, I think I'm fat, I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'm mm -hmm. black, I'm brown, I'm white, whatever, and I can never be better than that. So when I attract people, I attract people who think that of me because I think that of me. And I always write them back. When you don't love yourself, you're going to find somebody who doesn't love you either. And this will not have a good ending for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I said, but you've never broken through that. Most people repeat cycle. Mm -hmm. A woman whose dad beat the mom marries a man that beats her. Happens mm -hmm. over and over. Yeah. Alcoholism, poverty. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> By the time you're somewhere between four and ten, your entire personality is formed. Childhood is a city you can never leave. And if it's <laughs> that enough, yeah. well, what happen is you'll carry that forever. You'll always be that broken, spirited, unlovable kid that deserves nothing. Yeah. I helped teach an abnormal psychology class, a bunch of PhDs, and they were going into orphanages telling kids they loved them, give them candy. And, and I said, it won't work. That's complete bullshit. Anybody that thinks that works, doesn't understand anything. Well, all the theories say, so the theories don't mean anything. When I was six, I knew more about psychiatry than you will when you die. You don't know anything. Mm -hmm. You know what you've read. Let me explain to you what that kid thinks. Somebody who he's supposed to really love him has beat him, hurt him, right. abused him, maybe sex, maybe just physical, lied to him. And his trust level is based on that. That kid doesn't like himself, may even hate himself, doesn't know that. But everything he does is based on that. Yep. You come in and say, oh, I love you and everything's fine. He, first thing he thinks is you'll go to the parent who did this and he'll get beat much worse. That's why I never told anybody. Mm -hmm. That's going to kill you for that. I said, you're pouring water on grass seed that's on concrete and think you're going to get a lawn. Now... Your, your trust building with this kid is going to be like untangling the biggest knot ever. Right. That kid has to understand he's broken, why, how, and that path out is going to be really difficult. Mm -hmm. I have two siblings that never got through this. They're not through it. Did you, did you go to therapy or was this all kind of self-realized over time? I read every book you can. I went to therapy, mm -hmm. but I was eventually, they wanted to keep me because I was entertaining them. <laughs> I didn't get much out of it, and that's not yeah. to say therapy isn't great. I do think it takes time to find a good therapist, absolutely. And the other thing I mm -hmm. think, because therapy's great, and mm -hmm. don't get me wrong, it's probably most of some people's only hope. Mm -hmm. I had to understand what broke me and that I was broke. So you can say, oh, you live a tough life, write your childhood self a letter, I love you. Yeah. Understand why you hate yourself. Understand why you pick people who don't like you either. Mm -hmm. Understand why when something bad happens, well, what did I expect? Of course, and something bad happened. I'm bad. Yeah. If you don't understand the core of that, you can't dig out and get rid of it and regrow yourself. You can't. Yeah, absolutely. And they say the brain, unfortunately, will lead you towards the same trauma because of the familiarity behind it. It works. Yep. So, so why do you need to learn to? Break it. A man who's, I, I have a friend like this, so, white kid that lived on reservation. Mm -hmm. And I reconnected with her. And I said, um, and her father was hopeless alcohol. Perfect place to live. Beat the mom, all that stupid stuff. Brother died of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I said, well, tell me about your life. 
Well, I met a man who was a hopeless alcoholic when he got married. Well, sure you did. Yeah. And eventually started beating me. Sure he did. Eventually, I tried to leave and he tried to kill me. Of course he did. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Sally, this is how you lived and you've now recreated that. Right. So what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I loved him. He said he quit drinking. Sure he did. When you were naked. <laughs> right. Because that's a really good time to tell somebody what they need to hear. Right. But I bet you the next day he drank again. Yeah, he kept trying to quit. I said between sexual times or times he needed money from you or what. Right. And I'm like, stop doing this. She doesn't get it. And we don't break. We all make promises in desperation. <laughs> when you yep. find a really healthy person mm -hmm. believes they're worth something mm -hmm. and you start pulling that on them, they don't stay around very long. No, they do not. And we've, I'm even great people. I'm playing mm -hmm. You, you may have dated a loser once, and mm -hmm. they, it's just not for me. Yeah. And when the old people who are older that say, well, I what, I said, why did you break up with the guy that hit you in the face and broke your jaw? Uh, well, he said he'd never do it again. Why didn't you quit when the guy got fired the third time for being an alcoholic? Well, his boss is hard on him. I was like, no, you're making reasons. If you loved yourself, you wouldn't put up with this. You would deserve better. I would insist on better. Right. But you don't. And weak people are preyed upon by narcissists, mm -hmm. and they win every time. That's what I did. I felt your dad was a malignant narcissist. Absolutely. The other thing I kind of noticed, and I don't want to speak for your siblings, but just maybe the way it was portrayed in the book, I felt that you were definitely the more sensitive soul out of the siblings, that you had a very... Um, Maybe devotion is not the right word, but I can't think of a better one right now. A devotion to your mother and her happiness. I still do. Yeah, and I feel like, I felt as a child, it almost ate you alive that she could not be happy. It did. You know, one of the things that my wife doesn't understand this, she grew up in a really great family, love her family. She thinks she understands it, but she doesn't because she didn't live this. Mm -hmm. The hardest day of my life will be the day my mom dies. Mm-hmm. Not because of my mom dying, because of nothing she had. Yeah. She had nothing. Yeah. She will have had either 92 or 93 or 95 years. Never having a happy mom. Yeah. Never. She still has a hold on me. Mm-hmm. And my brother and I, about a month, I visited her. My brother and mom live an hour and a half apart. Mm-hmm. And I go to see my mom a handful of times a year, and I always see my brother. I'll say, go see her with me. Mm -hmm. I don't care what happens to her. I'm tired of hearing her sad story. Yeah. It isn't helping me. It's not doing me any good. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, how can you do this? It's your mother. Great thing to do with them. And I stopped the fight right there, because he's my brother. I love him. Say, you know, yeah. the brothers, we just, mm -hmm. from the opposite side of that gene pool. I'm not judging you. He says, it's the only way to protect my mental health. None of the kids except me have her. her. She doesn't have, she only has my home, my phone number. Yeah. And if I'm at work doing anything, no matter what, I could be sitting with president, let's say, I'm stopping. No. Take that call. <clears throat> Last week she called four straight days. I said, Mom, what's all? Mm hmm. Well, why do you think something's wrong? <laughs> what's all? And, well, the man next door yelled at me when I told him to pick up the dog poop. I want you to come here and straighten him out. <laughs> Mom, 
it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Or I think they're going to throw President Trump in jail. Are you worried about it? I hope they do. Oh, you can't say that. And I said, okay, mom, <laughs> I feel terrible, but I can't stop it. Well, you're in Washington. Can't you do something? No, mom, I can't. <laughs> yeah. And the next mm-hmm. day it'll be, I never hear from your brother and sisters. They won't mm-hmm. give me your number. No, they never will. No. Mm-hmm. Well, why? I'm not going to say anything. Don't know that. Right. And this is, and then she. She'll... Is it your fear that no one would be able to handle her in the capacity that you handle her? Somebody needs to care about her. Right. He has a stepson who's a great guy. Mm-hmm. But he's left to deal with all this all the time. Yeah. And I try to help John all I can. Mm-hmm. I also think I owe it to my mom to be the son the best I can be. Yeah. It, it is hard when a parent has truly a mental illness and there's absolutely nothing you can do. They're not going to see it rationally or black and white, what's wrong. She what, just can't. She can't. So you do have to deal with it the best you can. And it is true, I not to fault your brother, some people can't handle that and they go into a psychological turmoil dealing with that. They do. So, and I, none of them really can. My sister mm-hmm. will write her. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Moving on to, because there's so many characters in this book, but um, I definitely wanted to talk about this one. Your stepmother, Mona. You literally wrote, Mona was evil and learned. After my father abandoned my mother and joined forces with Mona, the abuse only got worse. It's the worst day of my life. When I realized that he'd married another psychopath, mm-hmm. all hope was gone. What was, Okay, what was the age difference between them? She's um, seven or eight years. Okay, so she was a bit younger, but she seemed to be well-established. She went to Duke. Uh-huh. She had a nursing degree. He was sent. She joined the public health service, and hardship duty was a reservation, so she got a promotion, and she was a reservation nurse, and my dad was a Bureau of Indian Affairs even though he thought it was an Indian. <laughs> yeah. One of about a dozen white people there and mm-hmm. both smart. So I had high hopes. Mm-hmm. But it didn't take me long to figure out that she was as bad as him. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you one story. Listener, I think you'll get this. Mm-hmm. So she started imposing these rules. He never had any. And if he didn't do them, there was like this big punishment. So two things happened back to back. So it's dead of winter on the reservation. And I mean really cold, like way below zero. Mm-hmm. And one day I lost either a 5 or a $10 bill in my paper out. Mm-hmm. Liked it on a Thursday. And it's dark when I get home. She says, you have to go back and find that money. Well, there's no street lights. There's nothing. It's cold. I'm freezing. I'm starving. Right. So she said, you go back and you're locked out until you find it. So I wander down the street and it's pitch black. And there's the public health hospital that she worked in had two side open. So I went to the one side, doors open. I walked all the way in, there's a gurney. And inside of it's a blanket, pillow. And I slept till morning. And after I knew that she had gone to work and school started, I walked home. She didn't care. No one checked on me, nothing. Oh my God. If If I died, that's fine. Shortly thereafter, my brother forgot to take out the trash. Now, we're talking old fashioned, steel trash cans mm-hmm. that 
you know, chicken grease and all kinds of, I mean, this is filthy garbage. Yeah. This isn't like in your powder room. This is. Right. So one night she told him, if you forget to take out the garbage one more time, I'm pouring the entire can in your bed all night. So that night we're awakened at like at nine or 10 mm -hmm. and we had bunk beds in this little tiny room. I'm on top. They pull the sheets down and pour an entire can of garbage, chicken bones, grease, filth, and pour the entire thing in and pull the blanket over my brother. If I could have killed, if I had an evil gene, mm -hmm. she would have been dead. Yeah. And I never forgave her and I never forgot it. And it was the most humiliating thing. And I realized that's who they are. This is your life. Right. You're toast. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get better. Yeah. All you can do is someday walk out of here. Mm -hmm. What happens, people, is when you walk out of here, that walks out of there with you unless you undo it. Definitely. And your brother, Sam, does he ever speak of this or did this just... You know, in therapy, the one thing I learned is children of super mm -hmm. react in different... I'm really dyslexic. I don't know if that means... I have a near photographic memory, and I mean, I'm legendary for... Mm -hmm. I have lots of weaknesses, but my memory's nothing short of this. It just is. Mm -hmm. We had a situation 20 odd years ago in lobbying where way before internet or any of that, my boss and I were stuck in an airport and we had a huge thing to fix within hours. Mm -hmm. I remember 200 phone numbers and names and time. Oh my God. Off the top of my head. We solved the entire problem of my memory. You know, I used to be pretty decent at phone numbers, but I swear with the way cell phones are now, I can't remember any number. Because you don't need to. <laughs> you don't need to, truly. But, but in this, yeah. um, so what was the point? Oh, and then the other story, mm -hmm. there's a thousand of Mona. Right. We were living in Kensington, Maryland. This is much later. And one day a friend of mine and I were throwing the football. Mm -hmm. It was a beehive. I mean, like three times the size of a pumpkin or cute. Right. And he threw a football through it, and I was running, and the beehive fell on top of me. Mm -hmm. And I tripped, and I had hundreds of stings. I mean, just my everything's just swollen up. Right. And I couldn't see. And my brother and sister were there. Mona was at work at the National Institutes of Health at that point. Dad's at work. Older sister's at college. Little sister and brother there. I come back, and my face, I can't see. And I can hardly breathe. They put me in bed and they say, David, what should we do? Mm -hmm. And I said, you have to call Mona at work. You have to. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're afraid to. And I said, I, I can't move. I can't breathe. They call her. And it seems like forever before they come back. She, she doesn't get off work till 4.30 or 5. Mm -hmm. Should have never called her. She'll be home when she gets home. So hours go by. And I'm just lying there. And my sister and brother worried about me. Mm -hmm. So Mona comes in, opens the door, says, oh, my, look at you. Pulls the blanket off. She pulls my shirt off, and the stingers just start popping off. She said, well, you're lucky you're not dead, but if you were going to die, you would have been dead. Oh my God. A lot of people would have died from that. Don't move. I'll be back. Don't goddamn move. Well, no, I'm about to run the Boston Marathon. Are you kidding? I can't move anything. Yeah. She goes upstairs, gets a bowl of alcohol and a needle, and pops all the bee stings. And she said, oh, my God, there may be more than 100. Then she puts me in a bath with some salt. 
And she says, you really could be dead. And I'm like, you. Uh, as if she was like wishing that it would have happened. Yeah. And she's like, I said, why did you come home? I have a job. I can't worry about what dumbass things you're doing all day. I'm like, the way you describe her, I just imagine her just always speaking in a very monotone voice. And like I think I told you earlier, she kind of reminds me of like Lilith from Frasier or Maris, but obviously not in a funny way. But or yeah, just maybe one of the women in a market app would. Yes, yes, yes. Or yes, we we could go that line. I was thinking more of the humor side of it, but yeah, I mean, she handmade tail auntie, humorless, colorless. Wow, she's horrible. It was interesting you were saying that like it seemed like your dad did get along with her and they would go on many trips together and it seemed to be, I hate to say it this way, but like a joyful reunion for the most part until <laughs> his plot. Dad had only been married to a psychopath. Mm -hmm. He had two women would do anything he wanted. One bright and educated one, my mom. Right. And he, I mean... Might have been sleeping with a prostitute for all he cared. She would put up with him. Wow. And she made more money than he did. She had a big pension. She had property. Mm -hmm. He got what he needed. And she, yeah. I'm convinced, she dated some men in college, he told me, but I'm, I don't think it took long for them to realize there's no there there. I see. I'm, 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 I think that two horrible human beings paired up until he decided to kill her because right. he's tired of her and... He wanted her pension. He had her land. He just figured, oh, now's a good time to jettison her. Yeah. So let's get into that. So finally, after Mona being, you know, basically kind of his golden goose, you know, lots of resources there. Yes. One, he's not speaking to you at this point. You've moved on. You're running your successful lobbyist company. Or, I'm sorry, you were working. At that point, Secretary of Agriculture in, okay. a, in a presidential appointment. It was a great job. Right. So you're doing very well, successful. You're not speaking to your father. He's not speaking to me. He's not speaking to you because he's a bit jealous of you. I did better than him. Did better than him. You got away from him um, and you get a frantic phone call from your sister's alley. So this is where I put everything I learned about my dad together. Mm -hmm. So listener, my stepmother owned property on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And the family owned it before there was a bridge. Now it's very expensive summer vacation, kind of like East Coast version of here. Got it. And she owned a big chunk of land on an island, which was on the sound side of the ocean. And they hadn't developed it yet. Mm -hmm. And so he conjured up this scenario. He would... She would go back and forth to this property from Bethesda, Maryland, to the Outer Banks mm -hmm. almost every weekend. So he would go back and forth with her. Sometimes he stayed in the house of Bethesda. Sometimes he went down. Mm -hmm. Sometimes together, sometimes not. So he was going to go down. My sister's a school teacher at this point in mm -hmm. her early 20s. And um, she says, what we're going to do, my sister Sally, we're going to get your stepmother, put her in a car, and we're going to pretend we're to go to the part of the island she owns and clear brush. Because mm -hmm. they would periodically clear it and clean it. Right. Sometimes my sister would help. And she said, well, what we're going to do, it's going to be in the remote part of the island early in the morning. There's only a wooden bridge across. Mm -hmm. There'll be no traffic. I'm going to hit her over the head as hard as I can with the shovel, cut her 
body up into different pieces. <laughs> put her in a bunch of plastic bags and put like concrete in it. Throw it in the water so she sinks. Then I'm going to get in the trunk of your car. We're going to drive out. You're going to go back to the trailer. She lived in a trailer where she taught. Right. And we're going to pretend we never saw her that day. Late at the end of the day, you're going to drop me off. We had a father-daughter day, and we never saw her. That's our story to tell the cops. So this was on a Wednesday. He said, she calls me and said, David, they're going to do this Saturday morning. You're the only one that can stop him. And I said, I will stop him. There's two things you're going to do right now. You're going to leave that trailer. You're mm-hmm. going to find a friend dad doesn't know. You're going to stay with them. You're going to call in sick, and you're not leaving where she lives between now and Saturday. Period. Mm-hmm. Disappear. What are you going to do? I'm going to figure this out. And she goes through this whole scenario. So it's a Wednesday night, and um, I wake up at 3 in the morning. This happens to me. I see everything. I see my dad's entire life and everything I've been doing. And this is way before I'm going to write the book because I'm still not halfway through my own stuff. Right. And I know how he works. He gets an accomplice and then he torches them. He right. He his kid or his best friend. Mm-hmm. He sets the scenario up where they do the dirty work. He may help, but they do the driving, the protecting. Mm-hmm. They're as much at risk as he is. Then he pretends that Nothing happened. So I'm thinking, he he knows my sister's going to call me. Mm-hmm. And I know he knows. So I'm starting figuring this out like three-dimensional chess. Dad wants to take me down. Right. Love to kill Mona, who wouldn't. <laughs> like to drop my sister in it because she's helpless, pathetic in his head. Mm-hmm. So what if he destroys her life? He'll just say, oh, I didn't mean to, and she wasn't a part of it. Right. Which helps her in no way. Right. And I think he's not down in the Outer Banks yet. He's still up in Bethesda. He wants me to think he's there. He wants me to drive down there. He wants me to help stop. Right. He probably has this whole situation set up with friends to get me. So three o'clock in the morning, I drive to his Bethesda house and there's his car. So I have my sister do one thing. <clears throat> she gets to her next place. Leave me the number I can reach. So I call her. And I said, where do you think Dad is? Oh, he's down at the Outer Banks. That's what he said. That's what he told me. I said, okay, good. I needed to know that. Why? Because that means that's what you'll tell me. Right. She says, I don't understand you. You don't need to understand. You just need to stay put. So next night, I drive to his house in Bethesda. First, I move out of the house I'm in. Right. Check into a hotel. And the day before, I'm getting this out of order. He had driven to my house. He had a key. He took all the canned goods and he stacked them in a pyramid. Let me know that he could get to me. Damn, okay. This is on a Tuesday, and I'm not piecing this together yet. Somebody broke in my house and did this. Who else could it be? It's him. Right. The next day, my sister calls and says, he's on the outer branch. So he wants me to think after he did that, he drove down. This is some sort of sleep. Yeah. It's like psychological warfare. (laughs) That's all he ever did. So I got that. So I drive back to this hotel, and I prepare a packet of letters. One of my friends is in the FBI, mm-hmm. the attorney brother. Another friend's in the D.C. police. Another friend is my office mate working for the secretary, secretary block. Right. I do a series of letters. I don't know if there was Kinko's then, but it's a place you can see rocks. Right. It's been all night. I had a typewriter. 
brought it with me, don't type all these letters in the continent. The letter one is to the chief of police, the other banks. Mm -hmm. This is Buddy, and he said, here's the scenario. I don't show up to, my father killed my stepmother, buried her on this island, blamed my sister who had nothing to do with it. You need to go and arrest him. Right. Then I sent a letter to the minister of the local church. He hated religion. He hated the church. Mm -hmm. But this minister, I feared, would do something. Right. The same story. I have another set of letters from my FBI buddy. I disappear. Get this son of a bitch. He did this to me. Right. D.C. policeman, same thing. And left all of the copies, didn't send any of them, with my real good friend, Ed, who's my deskmate. <clears throat> Show up the next morning, handed the letters, said mm -hmm. I'm sick for three days. But if I don't come back to the fourth day, read these letters. So at the hotel, after I've done this, I get the original of each letter. I go back to his car, to his house. Now, he's an insomniac, and the house has a weird glass front. Mm -hmm. You look out, but you can't look in. Mm -hmm. And I think if I'm going to do what I need to do to his car, mm -hmm. I'm going to be vulnerable. If he comes flying out of there with a gun, he could kill me. But he's not going to come out the front door. He's going to come out the kitchen door. Because mm -hmm. I knew the front door is huge and bulky and makes it. Right. The kitchen door, he could just run right around and catch me. The house is a little hell. Mm -hmm. So I, when I get there at 3 a.m. the next night, I right. get a huge piece of flagstone they stole from the reservation, dragged out there, and lean it against the kitchen back door. <clears throat> so if he starts barging out, he's going to hit that. And okay, and that was your clue. And make all the noise in the world. So I do that. Then I go to his car. And listeners, you have to understand what I know how to do to, to a car. <laughs> so first thing I do is pull off all four hubcaps and take off all the lug bolts, put the hubcaps back. This car isn't hit it very far. <laughs> then I take off both license tags and pull them as far as I can into the woods. Yeah. Somebody's going to stop me. Then I put a potato that I've brought and stick it all the way in the tailpipe. It'll backfire. Won't go very well. Still today, I think you could get away with that. Then I pull four five pounds of sugar into his gas tank clog up the gas tank. Mm -hmm. Then I um, go to his windshield and I have all this super glue and I glue every single letter to the windshield and they're all in red marker. Just oh my like, God. Okay. So you can't miss it. No, I'm not, the only ones in red marker. I glue mm -hmm. all of them, the letters, so you can read them side by side. And then I glue something that I did. Hi, I'm Thurston Crow. I'm a pathological liar, a murderer, and the biggest coward you ever met. I'm profoundly insecure. I have an inferiority complex that's greater than you can imagine. My sole goal is to destroy my children, who are my best superiors, because they make me feel as weak as I really am. And I glued that right to the front. So, and then take out the all four valve cores. And you have to have valve cores. You can't just pump the air back in. Take them with me. Yeah. And so his car is wrecked. <laughs> I come back to the hotel, call my sister, and say, wait about 24 hours. He's not going to come anywhere near you. Don't worry about anything. But still, I don't want you to go teach school. Yeah. So about a week goes by. Don't hear anything. East Blumhouse shows up after she goes back to school. Mm-hmm confronts her in the school parking lot. Did you tell David about what we were going to do? She's scared. No, 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 I didn't say anything. Well, I think he did. No, no, no. 
did he tell you about a bunch of letters that he was going to mail? I have a bunch of letters. And he says he, there's a note saying he mailed them. No, I don't know anything about any letters. <laughs> you sure? You let me know, won't you? So she calls me to tell me them. So I'm back at work maybe a day or two later. My secretary, mm-hmm. the whole division calls, she bothers on hold. He's been on hold 30 minutes. He's been out. So I pack the phone and he starts into it. You goddamn son of a bitch, coward. You think you're so fucking clever. Yeah. You think you stopped me. So I held the phone out. And back in the day, I don't know if landline still did this, you could click a phone. It showed it was on hold and put the receiver down. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't cut the, the call off. And if you hit the button, pick it up. So we had that. So I hit the button, put the receiver down and just stared at the phone until the light went out. And he would realize that I had hung up. <laughs> just let him keep talking and yelling. And that's what ended that crisis. Wow. So it's you basically took, it was actually genius, because you could have just retaliated physically, and that would have probably egged him on, and he could have eventually done it anyways. But you literally, in the book, you write about all these pranks that you pull on people, and you... You mixed what your dad taught you. It took his pranks. Play, play, play <laughs> you really did. And I was I was very impressed when I read that part. I was like, and that really did stop him in his tracks. Now, mind you, what year was this? This was the 80s at this point when this happened, writing all the letters that was in the 80s? Yes. Okay. So that means still no cell phones, no social media. So that really was the only way to get somebody's attention. Yeah, no, so I, yep. So I showed up at the work the following day. And I called my friend and said, don't mail the letters, don't do anything. Took all the letters back, and I didn't tell him what I did for 30 more years. Wow. No one knew. Wow. But you still have the letters. I think I have them buried somewhere. Oh, my God. That'd be a good time capsule to pull up. (laughs) Well, the story is amazing. I do have some follow-up questions. So in the book, you wrote about uh, that your dad kept basically boasting about a murder eight book do you think this is real no no but i found a bunch of his notes when he died at that point we would we the last year of his life we talked every day Mm -hmm. the sirs are going to say what the heck's wrong with you (laughs) between patty and i my wife and i were his legal and medical guardian okay told him i was going to write the book and recount the story he got furious i said it doesn't matter if you're mad at me, because if you tell me to go away, my conscience is clean. The other three kids won't have anything right. to do. Right. They call me back, said, okay, can't write anything till I'm dead, and I'm an atheist. And I said, I said, okay, so he knew that you were going to write about this. But he didn't know what I knew. Okay, gotcha. So one conversation, I said, did you ever wonder what happened to your accomplice? What accomplice? I said, do you mean George George Lloyd Wolverton, yeah. that accomplice? Mm-hmm. And his eyes nearly popped out of his head. I said, by the way, I tracked down his son. We're friends. His granddaughter, your accomplice's granddaughter, is an intern in my lobbying office. Oh, my yeah. God. She'd love to meet you. God damn you. Get the hell out of here. Never come back. <laughs> Call me next day so you can never mention George or anything about him. Yeah. And I said, you did destroy his life. He never got the pardon. He was a dummy. He made mistake after mistake. Wow. He died penniless. His wife divorced him to get more welfare. Oh, my God. They buried him and put a rock over it. I had to tell his son the entire story. 
his son found a San Quentin prison record mm -hmm. and asked him, and he said, don't ever ask me, but let me tell you this. If you ever go to California, don't protect a woman's honor. They'll throw you in jail for that. Oh, my God. So I did the Freedom of Information. I gave it to my friend Jeff, still a good friend, mm -hmm. showed it to his Jeff's daughter and shared with them what happened and wow. apologized, which can't. And yeah. I didn't do it, but I helped his family all I could. Amazing. And you guys are still friends to this day? Wow. That's incredible. And his son's a great guy. That's incredible. In the book, though, I, I'm pretty sure this is not true. Was there any validity after you took your DNA test that Sally might not be your sister? Because remember, your your dad? She looks exactly like him. <laughs> okay, so that was just him. No, we all did 23 and me. What's funny, and those of you know a lot about it, two kids in the same family can have different DNA. Sure, yeah. And pretty different. And um, Sally and I have the most crow, and the other two have the most of my mom. Interesting. They're fair. They're lighter. Mm -hmm. Now, um, my uh, younger sister looks like she got spit out of my dad's mouth. <laughs> okay. So he, he more just was just saying crazy things, as per usual, per usual for Thurston. I think it's also amazing that you were diagnosed with dyslexia, but, I mean, the way you wrote the book, I, how long did it take you to write this well, I think I've overcome dyslexia as mm -hmm. well as anybody can. Sure. And my memory's better, but my the, the, I have to rewrite things a hundred times. Yes. That book's been rewritten a hundred times. So that's interesting you say that. I actually was diagnosed with dyslexia myself, and I find I do have to read things minimum three times. It's a superpower that helps you and I are special. It really can be because I find things in such a granular manner that other people would not, because even though they're getting a great amount of skimming, the fact that I have to do it at least three times. Makes your brain work harder. Yes. Just like that time, my my office used to really make fun of me. You know, not anymore, I'm the boss, but <laughs> they probably do, I'm not there. But um, my memory, mm -hmm. the time I solved that entire problem, we were able to call everybody from that airport. I went back, my boss said, how the hell did you do that? Yeah don't even know how I did it. It's incredible. I'm actually, I love in the book, you wanted to quit because you thought that the shame of your family, you just could not work in a political uh, job and your yeah. boss would not allow you. And the Secretary of Agriculture, and this is a Reagan administration, very mm -hmm. proud of my, his name, John R. Block, Jack, mm -hmm. and his chief of staff is a guy named Randy Russell. They're both alive and well and good friends. They told me that they would stick by me. And they told me that on the darkest day, yeah. Andy and Jack. And they're still friends, and I still am in touch. And they both read the book, and they've been incredible to me. Mm -hmm. And they changed my life because they stopped me from running. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's amazing. And they didn't even know what was going on, but they were like— They knew it was bad. They knew it was—you know, they knew how good of a person you were. So they were just like, absolutely not. You're not going to quit over this. So when, I was afraid I could embarrass them. Yeah, you know yeah. one thing about politics. I mean, really different now. Any aid to a president, particularly mm. then, if you embarrass them, you've done real harm. Yeah. So let's say um, now it's the norm. No. <laughs> well, yeah. Chief of staff to uh, mm -hmm. the last governor of Maryland, mm -hmm. and he was just pedophile, mm -hmm. and it really embarrassed him. He wound up committing suicide. 
changes. You, know? you can do something, it's magnified, not because you're important, but the people you work for. Right. I went to him, I said, I, I, I could embarrass you, I could humiliate you. Mm-hmm. They said, you're not leaving. Yeah. You're not quitting. No, thank God they're done it. We're going to stand by you and you're going to stand by you. Yeah. And, and I'm so happy that they did. And what was, when the book came out, how did your family feel about it? My siblings were against it. My wife was against it. <laughs> my children were against it. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks it's the greatest thing. <laughs> um, two or three things happened. Mm-hmm. My older sister, who really has suffered, and my younger sister suffered. My older sister's daughter, niece, works for me. Yeah. Um, and we're close. And she read the book to my mom. To her mom, my sister went chapter at a time. My sister cried the entire time and gave a thumbs up. Oh, wow. That meant I could do it. Wow. Yeah, you know, um, I think families are just afraid of any type of failure for another family member. But I'm glad you persevered because that's the best way to do it. Just keep doing it. And they eventually see the light that you saw all along. You know, Um, I changed their names. It's the only part of the book that's... Right. And my father's real first name, my mother's real first name. Because mm-hmm. I didn't want it to come back on them. My kids still don't want me to identify them. I understand that. And that's fine. Very loyal kids, but the crow thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think they're proud of me. I think mm-hmm. my kids are. I think my siblings are. And I, the most amazing thing to me, all of my college classmates and all of my clients just poured out. Their support for me. Mm-hmm. They bought probably thousand books between maybe five thousand. Just my clients and friends. All my friends from college said we knew something was really wrong. Why didn't you tell us? Yeah. You can't. Mm-hmm. Um, the college girlfriend. I just walked away and I said I have to walk away. From you. I love you, but I'll destroy your life. Mm-hmm. My family will understand. No. <laughs> yeah, you're like this no. was the year after my dad buried the guy in West Virginia. Right. So 30-odd years later, how many years from college, mm-hmm. the girl that I broke up with, mm-hmm. that I simply walked away from, wrote me a long letter of email. You should have told me it would have been okay. And I said, I see that you're happily married with a good husband, three kids. Mm-hmm. God bless you. Right. You married me. It would never have worked. Right. I said to this woman, you've had a good life. I've remarried and I have a great life. I have a great one. Yeah. But if I'd gone to her dad in college mm-hmm. and I told him the truth, he would have kicked me out of the house. Right. Don't pretend all these years later it would have been okay. It right. would not have been okay. I did the right thing. Absolutely. And not telling you was even a better. So I'm sorry, but you've had a great life and now I've had a great life. Mm-hmm. No one who knew me from then could yeah. have had a great life. Yeah. You have no idea. I had years I thought I'd get arrested from what my dad did my uh, my senior year in college. Yeah. So we, we didn't get into that as well. Also, I want to leave a little bit uh, for people to read, of course, but... Wow. Uh, everything we discussed is honestly just the tip of the iceberg. There were there there are so many layers to this story, and that's why I think it's such a beautifully written book, because though main maybe everyone does not deal with a violent parent, but a lot of people deal with parents that have like it's basically psychological warfare that they go through, and maybe it's verbal, you know, maybe it's mental. It's not always violent, and so I saw 
so many parallels in this book that even I can apply to some people in my family are just like, wow, he went through obviously way more than I did, but it's important to know that you can come out of it. Yeah, I'm, but it takes time. I'm no superstar. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons the book worked is I was honest. Publisher said, you can leave out a couple of things. I said, great, we'll call it a novel. <laughs> We're going to write what happened, the mistakes I made, mm-hmm. how long it took to figure it out, how many times I took one step forward, two steps back, right. and that anybody can get through it if I can. Yeah, I'm sorry. And that's not some false modesty. Oh, tell me I'm so great. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. I believe that I'm a guy that took one day at a time and bounced like a cork in the ocean and never quit trying. Right. And I got there. Yeah. But if I can do it, you can do it. I mean, you read about these kids that come here from Vietnam, not speaking a word of English, and they graduate from West Point with 4 mm-hmm. Read about a nine-year-old black girl that just got in medical school. Right. None of those things. Mm-hmm. None of those things. I wasn't a great student. Dyslexia hurt me, and later it helped me because you understand you can take time to do things. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do it on a clock. But so many things that I got through, you can get through. Right. And believe me, the reason you might not is the journey is long. Yes. It's difficult. You're letting go of a lot of things you believe that have anchored you. Mm-hmm. But it's the wrong anchor, and you're in the wrong port. Absolutely. And I think also um, we rely heavily on timelines. So a lot of people feel like, oh, if I didn't get it right in at this age, I'm never going to get it right. And that's simply not true. true. I mean, you can have breakthroughs at any age. And I'm so happy that you finally did have your breakthrough. I think it's a beautiful novel, um, a beautiful memoir, I should say. And I think everyone should go out there and pick it up. And thank you so much for coming by. Bells, you've made my day and you've made a friend and I've enjoyed this more than you can ever know. Thank you. Me too.